From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, mental health includes our emotional, our psychological, and our social well-being. And, of course, it affects how we think, how we feel, and act, and how we cope with life. When it comes to mental health conditions, such as depression and anxiety, there are many potential causes. Family history, life experiences, and biological factors can all play a role. May is Mental Health Month. On today's program, we'll talk about mental health with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, how new imaging techniques are helping neurosurgeons understand more about tumors prior to surgery. And we'll discuss women's health concerns in each decade of life. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, one in five adults in the U.S. will experience a mental health condition in their lifetime. Well, you say, what's a mental health condition? Well, it's a disorder or an ailment that affects your mood, your thinking, or your behavior. Now, examples of mental health conditions include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. Each May, NAMI and participants across the country raise awareness for mental health in an effort to fight stigma, provide support, and educate the public. Here to discuss Mental Health Month is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sachuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sachuk. Good to see you. Great. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for being here, Dr. Sachuk. I, I suspected that it is probably an understatement to say that mental illness is a big problem in the U.S. Without question, and you know, as uh, we've discussed in previous segments is that seemingly whenever we do a new epidemiologic study, we see those rates of mental illness actually increasing as time goes along. And is there an explanation for that? I think, you know, there's multiple things in our life that are very stressful and the pressures continue to increase. So we're experiencing new and different stressors all the time. So I think that's what's uh, going along to increasing rates. It, It seems to me, though, that if you're asking people that they're saying, yes, I do have a mental illness. And so then that would explain why. Because before... People weren't being asked. Yeah, and that's a, that's actually a good problem to have. And one of the ways that we've been doing that is assessing it more in primary care. But there's also been um, some better public service announcements. You know, there's a better alignment of looking at uh, mental illness and mental health as just health in general. So much more frequently now, you're seeing that asked in a wide variety of different environments. Well, what do you think about cell phones? Uh, do, do they have anything to do with the, the anxiety and stress in our lives? It seems that, you know, 20 years ago, we, we didn't need a cell phone. Now, everybody's using it while they're driving. I mean, and, and who's next? And who's going to call me? And what did they say? And what's on Facebook? So you're going to pin and this on cell phones? I am. Well, it uh, definitely has been one of those technological advances where, to some degree, we're always on. Uh, so you're, I think you're exactly right. It's just you know another evolution of how technology can be helpful by increasing our availability and accessibility, but it also increases the raw frequency of the types of stressors that we're, that we're exposed to. Well, I don't is... know about your kids, but it, does, it, it seems like people don't know when to turn it off. 
But th- th- there was mental health concerns before all that technology came along. Not this bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make also a good point about not knowing when to turn it off because sometimes sleep disruption uh, that uh, can be a very common problem with you know electronic use in general and cell phones in particular that can lead to sleep disruption, which can actually not only increase vulnerability for mental health problems, but it can exacerbate existing mental health problems as well. How about the most common types, the things that you see in your office almost every day? What, what types of mental illness do you see? Yeah, far and away, you know, the big two are anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. And um, are those opposites? No, no. I mean, there's probably a lot more overlap uh, than they are different, but there are some unique differences. So we think of, like, what happens with anxiety. It's almost like an upregulating type of state. Um, so you see a lot more physiologic activation, like increase in heart rate. Um, muscle tension, blood pressure, um, racing thoughts as well, too, and, and worries and that urges to avoid. And then you think of depression almost like a down-regulating type of emotion. So we get sluggish, we get really slow, it's really hard to motivate ourselves. We may not necessarily uh, avoid because of fear, but withdraw because, like, the why bother thinking leads to why bother behavior. Um, the challenging thing, you know, when we look at those rates of uh, mental illness in the United States, we also have to keep in mind that there's a lot of comorbidity that goes along with mental health conditions. So we take the top two, anxiety and depression. Um, they're comorbid about 60% of the time. So what do it's you actually, mean by that? So they're likely to co-occur together. Um, so the two conditions usually show up at the same time or um, say anxiety and that's one of the probably the most frequent condition that I see um, people can be struggling with anxiety for a while and almost like the erosion or the wear and tear of struggling with anxiety and some of the impairments that it creates in a person's life can lead to feelings of depression I have a question here's what it doesn't make any sense to me some of the medications that are used treat both anxiety and depression and to me they're, they're sort of opposite yeah, sometimes it's all in the name uh, of a particular medication. So we think of what you're referring to are um, a class of antidepressant medications. So we'll take, you know, the most common being Prozac, you know, for example. It's an antidepressant, um, but uh, uh, works very well for not only treating depression, but many anxiety disorders as well, too, because the serotonin system gets dysregulated. Now, we think of anti-anxiety medications. They work in a different way with the body, um, and they work more on the peripheral nervous system, so they kind of settle the body down, but they actually have a depressant effect. So you always have to be careful about benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax and those kinds of medications when somebody is depressed because it can actually slow them down or depress them further. Can you prevent mental illness from happening? I mean, can you will it? Can you will mental illness away? Well, um, I think we've got a career in trying to figure that out, um, but uh, not not entirely, not entirely, because there are lots of different ways that mental illness can come about. So if, if we think of uh, almost like a tripod of risk, so one is we have to be cognizant of biologic factors. So within that, we think of familial genetics, um, basic temperamental style, and sometimes certain health conditions or even medications that are used to treat um, other conditions can um, cause or exacerbate existing mental health problems. So there are certain um, mental health conditions that uh, genetically have a stronger load, like OCD, social anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Then we think of the second leg of the tripod being the environment, and this happens in context, and this gets to Dr. Shai's comment a little bit earlier on, is that the environment around us can be more stressful when we're exposed to more 
unpredictable, uncontrollable stressors that increases our overall stress load. And finally, the third leg of the tripod are just learned factors. So how have we learned to cope, control, kind of deal with stress over time? So it really, you know, kind of depends. We have to look at all three of those factors um, to see um, how much movement can a person make in terms of managing their, their mental illness. And there are some, you know, mental illness, mental health conditions that folks um, struggle with that they actually do very, very well with medication um, or behavioral therapy alone or in combination. And other folks, they're going to be having to deal with this to a greater lesser extent over time, but we can always do treatments that can help make things less bad. Is behavioral modification or talk therapy, is that a key component of this? It seems that whether it's anxiety or depression, a lot of people just want to manage it with medication only. End of story. Yep. But it would seem that you're missing part of the solution. Very much so. So in, in, in my world, it, we really look at skills and pills uh, that are in there. But you bring up a great point, Tracy, that um, I think just the, the way that the medical system has been built and culturally it's easier to prescribe a pill than it is to learn a skill. The the downside of, of medications is sometimes uh, it uh, you have to deal with the side effects as well, too, and it may not be uh, quite as effective um, over time, whereas the skill, it's a lot harder work. That's the downsize, but the durability of effects over time. From our research um, is that when we're treating anxiety disorders, uh, behavioral therapy actually tends to be more effective than medication management, whereas um, depression, especially more severe cases of depression, uh, medication management tends to outperform uh, behavioral therapy. But in certain cases, uh, definitely the combination of the two, you are more likely to um, see some positive outcomes with that. It does seem that people are more willing these days to say that I have a mental health issue, but they are not willing to go as far as, and here's what I'm doing about it. Medications seem to be helping people, and then they don't have to go and do the skills part. Right. Yeah, we always think, I think it's like this with any healthcare intervention. We're always trying to look for minimum sufficiency um, intervention, so it's the least amount that we can do to help somebody out. But we also want to make sure that, um, you know, therapy or treatment is like a choice. So if we can provide uh, folks with options, uh, so options could be medication management, behavioral therapy. We've talked about mental health apps in the past as well, or even wellness types of interventions like exercise and sleep management. If you can give people a limited range of effective treatment options, they're much more willing to engage rather than saying, this is the only treatment for you, or this is the one I feel comfortable in delivering, so this is what you're going to get. All right. Our guest is Dr. Craig Sawchuk, a psychologist at the Mayo Clinic. And remember, May is Mental Health Month. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Sawchuk, plus this myth or matter of fact. Yes, myth or matter of fact, 60% of adults and 50% of children with a mental illness didn't receive mental health services last year. Is that a myth or is that a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. May is Mental Health Month, and our guest is psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. We're going to talk about treatment of mental health illness with Dr. Sawchuk after this myth or matter of fact. 60% of adults and 50% of children with mental illness didn't receive mental health services last year. Is that a myth or a fact? Unfortunately, that's a fact. Wow. Yeah. Why is it that so many people don't get help? 
Well, I think, you know, some of the, uh, we still have some ways to go with dealing with the stigma of mental health related issues. And, and we see this, uh, this will vary in cultures too, in terms of how willing are people to express, um, struggles. One of the other issues that's also really important are social determinants of health. So sometimes it's just, because of poverty, lack of access uh, to care, there's lots of other things that get in the way of being able to access any kind of treatment, let alone mental health treatment. So we've definitely been doing better uh, overall with making treatments more available, but there's still quite a long ways to go. Are there uh, enough of, pe- of people like you, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, to handle the mental illnesses out there? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some people are feel that there's already one of me, and that's more than enough. So it really depends. <laughs> that's just uh, you your know, kids and your wife. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, you know, it, it really there's never going to be enough healthcare providers or mental health care providers for everybody, and that's also not the way of of doing treatments. I think that um, what we've been able to do over time, especially with our health services uh, related research, is really moving treatments out to where people access them. So uh, here in the United States really moving it into the primary care service because that's actually where mental health conditions present much earlier than they do in specialty mental health settings. Um, Out in the UK, uh, they've really retooled completely the National Health Service and they've dramatically expanded the accessibility and availability of mental health services in community centers, um, in towns, um, so even like in non-medical settings as well too that have really helped to uh, really revolutionize their system. With the help of the royal family, William and Harry and Kate have all jumped on board in helping with that. Exactly. And this really kind of gets back to that point that there's been a tremendous evolution in reducing the stigma. And it really, really helps when uh, folks that are in a position of power and influence and on the media um, that can increase awareness not only of these problems, but even more importantly, how to access care and what is good evidence-based care. Did I hear you imply or say that much of the mental illness in this country can be handled by primary care physicians, family physicians? Um, I, I think that they can be the, they're the first line. Uh, I think that there's, again, lots of other ways that we need to work on improving mental health management and treatment. Um, but yes, definitely primary care physicians and their treatment teams can. There's been lots of developments in population-based uh, health programs. Uh, So this is just ways that we can improve screening for mental health conditions within primary care, um, having treatment algorithms for evidence-based treatments for medication management, and then also having behavioral health providers, psychologists, and social workers right at the point of care that can also team with a primary care team to help manage mental health conditions where they show up. If you start with the primary care doctors, I would imagine that would be the first level of treatment. You said uh, levels of treatment is something that we should discuss. Right. So we can almost think of levels of treatment almost like intensities or different step levels of treatment. So this is, you know, the whole idea of providing options for patients, but then also trying to gauge your treatment um, to the intensity of the condition that you're seeing. So at one level, we can think of it of a low intensity uh, level. So we can think of this more like wellness types of interventions like exercise, sleep regulation, diet, building social support, um, traditional self-help materials, or even mental health applications. So those we would consider low intensity because they don't involve much work on a provider part. That's where we think of a moderate level um, of intensity, and that's where engagement either with a primary care team 
or a mental health provider, typically on an outpatient basis um, of, of more structured treatment program with specific goals uh, in place. Then we think of a high-intensity type of treatment, which could be more of an inpatient side of treatment. So we can think of more emergent uh, services, inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations, um, addictions programs, um, or even comprehensive outpatient treatment specialty programs. And there's plenty uh, of specialty um, higher-intensity outpatient programs uh, for anxiety, depression, and substance-related disorders. Do you do you have a pretty high success rate? Uh, I mean, are, are are there a certain percentage of patients that have a mental illness that can't be helped, or would you say that pretty much everybody who comes in for help gets help and gets better? Well, we'd like to believe that. There's so many different factors that go into treatment, but then also the factors that are outside of treatment that may have contributed to the mental health problem in the first place still sure. remain, you know, over the course of of time. Earlier when we were talking about, um, we're still working towards the uh, trying to increase the number of people that are actually receiving care. Within that, not everybody receives evidence-based care. So we think of from a psychotherapy standpoint, um, there's lots of providers doing psychotherapy out there. Unfortunately, not all of them are evidence-based. You know, so, and, and tell us what that means, evidence-based. Yeah, evidence-based is based upon, well, what does the research literature show in terms of what, what types What do we know of, works? Exactly. And in previous shows, we've talked about the role of exposure therapy being such an important treatment principle from a behavioral standpoint for anxiety. But we can also think about it from a medication management standpoint. So, for example, um, somebody may be on an antidepressant for um, for a major depressive uh, episode, but maybe that medication isn't dosed high enough to have an effect on them. So they're actually being underdosed, or maybe that's the wrong medication for them. So there's lots of additional factors that really do play into um, improving their mental health condition. How do we break down the stigma of mental illness? That's what Mental Health Awareness Month is all about. Yep. Well, dedicating a month uh, to this is a great step in that direction. And I really underscore um, what uh, Dr. Shives mentioned right out of the the gate, uh, the National Alliance of Mentally, uh, on Mental illness. They do a phenomenal job uh, across the country in so many different communities. So I strongly encourage people to go to their website, which is www.nami.org. Great website that provides um, not only great education, but then also like resources in the community, and many of which are free, you know, for support. And there are other national organizations like the Anxiety and Depression uh, Disorders Association of America in the advancement of uh, behavioral and cognitive therapies, also great organizations. Well, thanks for all of your help. Thanks for being here. It is Mental Health Month this May, and we've been talking mental health awareness with psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk of the Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Craig. Great. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how new imaging techniques are improving neurosurgery. And later on in the program, we'll discuss women's health at every age. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. What is nanotechnology and how does it fight cancer? Well, in Dr. Betty Kim's lab at Mayo Clinic, they custom make nanoparticles that hone in on cancer cells while simultaneously revving up the body's immune system to wipe out the disease. What this means is that for patients who have cancer, 
this treatment can not only treat the actual primary tumor, but it may potentially prevent future tumors from occurring in the same site and or prevent future tumors from spreading. Nanoparticles are tiny. They've been used to deliver medicine for a while, but Dr. Kim's team took it farther. Plus, a subset of those immune cells become memory cells. And they remember that in, in months or years past that the body had develop these foreign diseases. And so if the disease were to recur in that host, it would actually effectively eliminate the cancer cell. Let's talk about constipation. Roughly 42 million people suffer from constipation. Mayo Clinic physical therapist Laura Mayhofer says many are women. Upping your intake of fiber, fluid, and exercise helps, but some women may also have issues with the relaxation and coordination of pelvic floor muscles. Some people, it's that coordination piece. Like if you're going to throw a baseball, there are a lot of things that have to happen for you to toss that ball. Same thing when we have a bowel movement. There are other people who have shortened and tight muscles and they don't have the ability to stretch. Both situations make going difficult, but both may be improved with stretching and relaxation. Myhoffer's recommendations include deep breathing, hip stretches, and stomach stretches. It's hard to evacuate the stool if you can't get that length in the muscle to have the bowel movement. And in other news, let's talk about raspberries. No, not the fruit. Raspberries, strawberries, road rash, whatever you want to call those scrapes. They are red, painful, and can be difficult to treat. Some say to cover the wound, and others say to air it out. Mayo Clinic docs say that skin abrasions are wounds to the top layer of skin. They generally heal quickly, but large and deep abrasions can cause scarring. The biggest threat is infection, so it's important to clean and treat the injury properly. So here are some tips for treating skin abrasions. Clean and wash your hands first. Rinse and clean the abrasion with lukewarm water. Apply a thin layer of petroleum jelly or antibiotic ointment. Protect and cover the abrasion. Use a clean bandage or a piece of gauze with tape. Change the dressing once a day or sooner if they're dirty or wet. Do not pick the scabs and check for signs of infection. So if need be, call your health care provider. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Treatment for a brain tumor depends on the type, the size, and the location of the tumor. Treatment options may include radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. Surgery to remove all or part of a brain tumor can be risky, but new technologies invented at Mayo Clinic are helping surgeons better prepare by providing new information about the brain tumor prior to surgery. Magnetic resonance elastography and slip interface imaging show the stiffness of brain tumors and their degree of attachment. Important information for surgeons to know before the procedure begins. Here to explain this new technology and how it benefits patients is Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gompel. Welcome to the program, Dr. Van Gompel. Thank you. Good to have you here. So for you, it is brain surgery, and we know it, it, it's difficult, but tell us how long it takes. How long do you have to go to school to learn how to do brain surgery? 
So uh, <laughs> quite a time. Um, I think I was 36 when I became uh, allowed to operate on my own. Oh my so right? it's a seven-year residency, four years of uh, medical school. I did some additional training with the NIH before pursuing a residency career. And uh, it, it, I mean, it takes as long as ortho. Uh, well, longer, much. actually. <laughs> a little bit longer, <laughs> yeah. Explain what MRE mean and slip interface imaging. What do these terms mean? The surgery that I do and, and uh, my partner, Dr. Mike Link, uh, here, we we often uh, address tumors that touch the brain, um, so meningiomas or acoustic neuromas and, and pituitary tumors. And uh, while these tumors um, typically aren't uh, cancerous or anything like that, they just push on the brain too much and cause problems. So when they get larger, as they push on the brain, they develop planes or um, attachments to the brain that make the surgery more risky. So this technology, although I didn't invent it, I wish I did, uh, was invented by researchers here at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Houston and, and some other people in our, in our uh, excellent radiology uh, department. Um, they introduced us into using this uh, with, uh, previously we used uh, diagnostic imaging just to look at the tumors and see what they look like, and we made guesses as to how difficult they would be to remove. Well, this technology actually is like palpating the tumor. Um, it gives us information. Touching it, feeling it. Yeah, I mean, without us actually being in there. So it actually allows us to see how stiff, soft a tumor could be. Um, and on top of that, as uh, we kind of looked at some more questions together, it it appeared as though we could also determine whether or not the tumor was stuck to the brain or sticky on certain uh, nerves or, or parts of the brain, which... Um, we believe is helping us understand the risk of the surgery to the patient. Does it also make a difference in the diagnosis? Once you would have that tumor removed and you would then diagnose exactly what you had, it must help with that before surgery. So, you know, um, if we're strongly suspicious of a certain type of tumor, not all that commonly, although um, one of the most recent patient's examples that we've had, most of the pituitary tumors are very soft. I, I sent a very large pituitary tumor, at least that's what we thought it was, to the MRE, and it came back as very firm. So Dr. Houston called me and said, this is very bizarre. It's very firm, and brought it to the operating room and uh, started to remove it, and the patient had a very remote history of a, of a, of a cancerous-type tumor almost 20 years ago, and it turned out that that tumor was that cancerous type tumor within the pituitary gland. So it's, uh, it, it certainly may have that capability, although the tumors that we uh, look at are very uh, um, uh, characteristic most of the time on MRI right now. So tell us about, the, you say pituitary. What, what is the pituitary? What does it do and where is it located? So the pituitary gland is smack dab in the middle of the head. That's, <laughs> right uh, in the middle of your brain. Uh, the geometric center. Um, it's not in the brain. It's outside the brain, but it's uh, definitely in the middle of the head. Um, and it, uh, if there's a tumor there, it actually grows back into the optic nerve, sometimes the brain stem, sometimes into the um, most important parts of the brain. And That's the nerve to the eye, the optic yeah, nerve. Yeah, okay. nerve to the eye. And, um, you know, this, this particular technology uh, um, uh, helps us in that most of the tumors, unfortunately, are very soft. So when we get to the operating room, uh, we plan maybe an hour, an hour and a half to remove these uh, because we can suction most of it. Um, however, about 1 in 10 are very firm tumors, and if that's the case, we have to prepare differently for that case because that case now may take five, six hours to do a good job without injuring the patient. You know, without being too graphic, can you tell us how you get there if this pituitary gland is sitting right in the, in the central part of the, of the brain? How, you get, how do you get there? So we go through the nose for most of them. And uh, thankfully, uh, technology has developed over the years and that even tumors that aren't exactly in the cella or where the pituitary gland lives and grow into the brain, most of the time now we can get through there with something called expanded endonasal surgery. 
Um, so we just put a small camera through the nose and work through the two nostrils. Uh, no, so really? <laughs> I don't want to dwell on that very much. I just am curious. You're saying you use this for pituitary, the tumors that are near the pituitary gland, pituitary tumors. Can you use it for other sorts of brain tumors? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So it started. we started using it for meningiomas because meningiomas typically can be um, uh, very sticky to the brain, and it matters uh, the stroke risk for that. So a lot of the surgeons, Dr. Fred Meyer, Dr. Mike Link, and, uh, and Dr. Parney, um, we started using it for that. But it, it, we thought it might have more applicability toward pituitary tumors, but uh, also, and probably most importantly, acoustic neuromas, or another name for them is vestibular schwannomas. These are tumors that arise from the uh, kind of the plastic uh, uh, wire covering of the nerves that go out to the ear. They're balanced nerves, and um, those tumors uh, can grow quite large. The tumors, um, when they're large, have a lot of risk associated with the surgery, and uh, and the stickiness of them to the brainstem really impacts the patient outcomes. Sometimes there's an option of radiation therapy for some of these tumors, and if we know ahead of time if there's a a high risk to the patient, it may be uh, useful in some circumstances to steer more towards a uh, radiation option. So what this it, it, uh, MRI does, and it's kind of an MRI variant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it tells you more about the tumor so you can be better prepared to remove it when you get in the OR. Absolutely. Um, and is this a uh, is this unique to the Mayo Clinic, or is this a particular type of software that you use with an MRI scanner, or, or, or how do you make elastography work? So elastography is used in other areas that I'm not that familiar with, but they, it started in the liver looking at cirrhosis. Uh, cirrhosis, uh, cirrhotic livers are very firm, and it, uh, it's now being used to grade that uh, amount of firmness. So that, so the, the radiology department here, um, and honestly, it is fairly unique to the Mayo Clinic. I know there's a couple centers that have visited and trying to expand the technology right now, but they've come up with a platform here um, that it's a, a small head frame, effectively, that they wear during the MRI that you can't really detect it, but feels the, it, it shakes the head a little bit with some ultrasounds, and uh, that's that wave is what's being detected by the MRI. And they, the software that is associated with this device actually interprets that wave through the brain as uh, obviously something like Jello, which is very soft, will will move more with that than something that's very firm, like say a rock that won't move at all. Right, wow. so and that's what they're using, and, and it's uh, very unique to here, and I think it's very place specific. Further, the NIH provided a special MRI that's only here to proliferate this technology. So there's a very nice device here that only we have and, and are able to use for this. We've been talking about new brain imaging techniques developed right here at the Mayo Clinic with brain surgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gompel. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Van Gompel. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk Women's Health Week with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. This weekend brings an end to National Women's Health Week, an observance led by the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office of Women's Health. Did you know there was such a thing? I did not. You do now. Well, the goal of Women's Health Week is to encourage women to make their health a priority. Now, while some of the themes stay the same throughout life, you know, you know the drill. You got to eat right and you got to exercise. There are some new concerns that arise for women as they get older. 
You don't say. Well, now we'll find out. The focus of this year's Women's Health Week has been your health at every age. A look at women's health needs through each decade of life. And here to discuss from the Mayo Clinic Women's Health Clinic is internal medicine specialist, Dr. Jacqueline Thielen. Welcome to the program, Dr. Thielen. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today. Oh, Dr. Thielen, nice to have you here. I thought women were pretty good at taking care of themselves. Why do we have to uh, have a uh, National Women's Health Observance uh, Week, I mean, at least compared to men, aren't they? <laughs> I would make the suggestion that men take care of themselves because their women are taking care of them, too. <laughs> Everybody needs you to take care of women to do everything, <laughs> don't you? Why do women need to be reminded to take care of your health if we are pretty good at doing it? I think overall, for most women, we sort of forget because we are caregivers as a... Um, as a rule, not every woman, but as a rule, we're always thinking about everybody else's needs. And so ours, we know we're supposed to, but in terms of the list of priority, it's a little bit farther down the list. All right, let's talk about some uh, priorities. And in general, for women of all ages, what are the most important things that, that women can do to stay healthy? You sort of mentioned, you know, the basics in terms of healthy living choices, but I think safety is one of those things that women sometimes forget. We're talking about young women, um, seatbelts, uh, safe sex, um, and of course, as we get older, we're talking about holding on to the railing before you fall down the stairs, or uh, even uh, not slipping on a uh, slippery floor. You know, it, it seems like more and more people are, are talking about exercise as an important component of. Uh, of staying healthy. Do you think that is uh, as true for women as it is as for men? You- Definitely. I think for women, their mind-body connection is very strong, and so their ability to exercise uh, does help them maintain their, their mind, uh, their mood, as, uh, as well as improve their sleep. And when all those things are functioning um, at their best, uh, they feel a sense of well-being. Well, let's go through some of the decades here, through the decades, and start with the 20s. And as uh, the 20s, you know, that's often about uh, you've got a new job, you've got uh, early relationships, so you're thinking about stress management as well as, of course, uh, safe sex practices, um, concerned about avoiding um, an increased risk of sexually transmitted infections, those kinds of things. Significant increase in, in the number of sexually transmitted diseases or in, infections recently, right? Uh, yes, there has been. I think, again, you know, in the 1980s uh, when HIV were, a little bit more conversation about that. People talked more about sexual um, infections, and we sort of forgot. And that younger generation now um, is having to relearn some of the lessons that us older people uh, sort of remember. It used to be that uh, a lot of the women were having their babies, and so pregnancy was a big thing for the 20s, and now it's more to the 30s and 40s. Correct. It's been a little bit delayed. So the 20s, it's really about safe sex. Um, They think a little bit about fertility, but not a lot. It's certainly more the fertility issues are now in the 30s, and not only... uh, uh, what to use to prevent pregnancy, but can I get pregnant? Mm. And so the infertility piece has really become a much more um, dynamic um, conversation. What else for the 30s? I would say for the 30s, again, it's screening. Um, pap uh, tests, we certainly have added HPV screening to women who are 30 and older. And how do you do that? That's done through a regular pap exam. Uh, so the, instead of using the slides that we used to uh, use, we have liquid and the liquid that can be obtained from uh, swapping the cervix can be then used to actually look at under the microscope as well as to do HPV testing with. 
human papillomavirus. And important to know if you have that, correct? Correct, because we recognize that your cervical cancer risk increases if you've been exposed to certain types of the HPV virus. All right. What about the 40s? Well, 40s, then we're, of course, starting to think about our hearts a little bit more as well as our brains. And so cardiovascular things like hypertension, uh, lipid, life, making those healthy lifestyle choices become more of an issue. Um, Breast cancer uh, screening should begin when? Generally speaking, we say it should begin at age 40. Um, Whether or not to do an annual uh, imaging study is the controversy, and that seems to be a moving target with all the different guidelines that seem to come out every year. But generally speaking, the Mayo Clinic, we do recommend annual screening starting at age 40. With or without a positive family history? With or without. Okay, I think it's important that women recognize that uh, they're female and they have breasts, so they are at risk for breast cancer. <laughs> what Just about like men in a prostate, huh? Yep. Exactly. Perimenopause for my fellow 40-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going out of the 40s and into the 40s, that's when perimenopause happens. Or... Not? I would say yes. <laughs> you know, on average, the uh, age is 51, 52, but we have to get there sometime. And the average, we say now, the average transition takes about seven years. So it's got to start somewhere. So it probably starts in our 40s and progresses through. Are we at the 50s yet? We are now. All right. We're just gonna. We're not gonna mention anything more about. <laughs> oh, perimenopause. we're still on perimenopause. No, that <laughs> no, drags no, no, on no. forever. Because I want to get to menopause, yeah. and that's fifties. Yes, and we're talking hot flashes, night sweats, uh, sleep disruption, vaginal dryness. Uh, I just had someone in my office to complain about the wrinkles and the dry skin, of course. And of course, there's always controversy as to what to do to manage those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this is the man's fault. We want to forget not. that. <laughs> Stop it. And it's not all the hormonal loss fault either, but yes, hormone says, or the loss of hormone says make a difference. Yeah, well, I'm It's sure not in our heads. Why, yeah, and, and it's a gradual decrease in, in hormones over time, starting around 40. Is that what they call it, perimenopause? Well, it can be gradual, but it can be sudden for others as well. So, again, it's an individualized journey. Everyone, oh, a journey. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try not to punch you in the arm for saying that. <laughs> Anything right. else in the 50s that colon we have to talk about? Yes, and okay. as, uh, he's right. Colon cancer is really an important part, and screening should start at age 50. Sooner, however, if there's a family history. Uh, 60s, you know, we're talking about chronic illnesses now. So generally speaking, you're observing what the woman has done over her lifetime, and you're trying to optimize the situation with her chronic illness. And, of course, we don't want to forget sex. Mm-hmm. And so sex is important, whether or not you're 20 or 60 or, or beyond. So, you know, we want to make sure those vaginas are quite uh, lubricated mm-hmm. as well as that the libido is still working. I think I heard or read somewhere that your age at 65 is a great indicator of whether you're going to or whether maybe you'll even want to make it into your 90s. Is there something? Your you age, you mean your that? health at 65? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it has I do to think, do with you that. know, if you have a lot of illnesses, you probably just feel old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, physically, if you're aging, that's probably going to change your level of well-being, whether or not you want to get to 80 or 90. Well, and if you if you are 65, healthy or not, on average, a woman is going to live till they're, what, 86 or 87, I think, a man till they're 84. Correct. So, so let's talk about those 70s and 80s. Um, again, it's about living life happily. Mm-hmm. I think those who uh, do not stress the small things tend to do better. And I think it's important to, again, um, emphasize mind, body, health, and do the things that make you happy, not uh, spending too much time on things that make you uh, sad. 
Yeah. All right. Do whatever makes you happy. Tracy, when you get there. I mean, you've got a long ways to go, don't you? Okay. I hope I get there. Hameo Clinic Women's Health Expert, Dr. Jackie Thielen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.